This is episode 25 of the Inner Game of Aging podcast. Welcome to the Inner Game of Aging podcast, helping you to discover how to be older without growing old. And here's your host, turning this whole idea of aging upside down, Lee Mowat. Hello and welcome to episode number 25 of the Inner Game of Aging podcast. I want to take a moment to thank the listeners of this podcast. The listenership is growing and I am forever grateful that the Grow Older Not Old message is resonating with more and more people. With all of us doing our part, it becomes easier to affect positive change in our culture and in our individual lives. Thank you all. But moving forward, in the last episode, that is episode number 24, I was talking with David R. Craig, a New Hampshire elder law attorney. We discussed many interesting things about wills, trusts, and a few other aspects about personal planning. We learned some important stuff in that episode, so if you have not yet heard that one, I would suggest that you return to this episode after you have completed that episode. It is chock full of information that you do not want to miss. And today's episode is part two of that same conversation. In this part two, you hear David and I discuss powers of attorney, advanced health care and financial directives, guardianship, and Medicaid rules. The show notes page will have further information about David himself, as well as links to anything mentioned in this episode. You can also ask David a question on the show notes page, and of course you can get to the show notes page at innergameofaging.com forward slash IGA25. For those who are new to this podcast, the show notes page for any episode can be found with the following URL pattern. innergameofaging.com forward slash IGA and then the episode number, in this case 25. So, if you know the episode number that you're interested in, you can always visit the show notes page associated with that episode. And another announcement that I am happy to make, text transcripts of selected episodes are starting to become available. Many have asked for text transcripts, and the first one to become available is that for episode number 22, where I detail my experience regarding my recent stroke. This has been an important episode for many people, so I am happy to have the transcription for this episode become available. Other transcripts will become available over time, and you will be notified of them if you belong to the Insiders Club on the website. And you can join the Insiders Club from any of the show notes pages or anywhere on the site where you can leave your contact information. To find out more about the Insiders Club for the Inner Game of Aging, simply go to innergameofaging.com forward slash insiders. There, you can explore the many benefits that Insider Club members enjoy.
and there's more of that on the way. But for now, let's return to part two of my conversation about elder law with David R. Craig. Now, I wanted to, you know, we've spoken about wills. We just finished speaking about trust. We may have some more questions about that. But I'm also confused and concerned about living wills. It's a very um, unfortunate term um, because it is so easily confused. Mm-hmm. Uh, in New Hampshire, we, um, we tend to refer to them as advanced directive documents. Mm-hmm. We used to call them living will declarations. Mm-hmm. And people would get hung up on the living will term. I thought the declaration term was the more important part of it because what you're doing is you're declaring your wishes to the world. A living will declaration, or the second part now of our advanced directive document, Mm -hmm. is essentially your chance to say to the world, hey, if I'm ever in that awful state where I'm near death or I'm permanently unconscious and I'm certified to be that way by two medical professionals, at least one of whom is my personal attending physician, and there is no reasonable hope of recovery, and I use that term um, carefully. Those are not my words. That's what mm-hmm. the statute says. No okay. reasonable hope of recovery. I'm not sure I know what that means. But um, uh, then, hey, thanks, but no thanks. I don't want to be kept alive through the use of artificial supports. I would rather decline those things and let me move on. So does a living will? Does a living will take care of? Your end-of-life issues? It is. That's exactly what it is. So so if I were in some awful accident and the EMTs peel me off the side of the road and they rush me to the hospital and the emergency room doctors are working on me, we haven't said anything about a living will yet because Mm -hmm. they're trying to save my life. I think when the living will really kicks in is when I'm stable, they've done all they can do, and sadly, this is as good as it gets. Terry Shavo was probably the, the, the well, they're all terrible situations, but the Terry Shavo case was the, um, the the one that most people remember. She, I believe she was 26 and she had a medical event. She lost oxygen to her brain for a long enough period of time that she was significantly uh, damaged. Unfortunately, well, fortunately or unfortunately, um, depending on your perspective, she survived. Mm-hmm. And she lived for 15 more years in this permanent vegetative state while her family literally waged war on one another trying to figure out what the right thing to do was because she had not clearly and unequivocally unequivocally expressed her wishes ahead of time. And to me as a planning attorney, whether you're on the right-to-life side or whether you're on the right-to-die side, my role as a planning attorney is to make sure that that person's own individual wishes are recognized and honored. And the best way to do that is to express those carefully in a living will document. You mentioned some other names for the living will. What, what yeah, that? in New what Hampshire, we call them advanced directives. Advanced directives. Yeah, 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 and in New Hampshire, we used to have two separate documents. We used to have a power of attorney for health care decision-making and a separate living will. And I think what was happening, people were showing up with the living will when what they really needed was the health care directive, excuse me, health care power of attorney, mm-hmm. or sometimes they were showing up with a health care power of attorney when the issue was really a living will issue. Exactly. So what our legislature did was combine those two documents into to one is that and they, do most states do that 
Um, states do, yeah. Okay. Uh, but they, they again, it's very state specific, and mm-hmm. they have different names in different places. But it still looks like two documents because it has a part one and a part two. Okay. And, the, and the easiest way to remember the difference is that part one is power. So, for example, I have an advanced directive that gives my wife, in part one of the document, the power to make any and all healthcare decisions on my behalf if I'm unable to do that. Where will I be tomorrow? I don't know. Mm-hmm. If I were incompetent or unconscious or I were suffering from advanced Alzheimer's disease or I had a head injury, pick your favorite, and I couldn't make my own decisions, the first part of my document gives my wife the power to make those decisions on my behalf. And that could be routine things like, which doctors do we see? Which prescriptions do I take? Which experts do we consult with? Which tests do we run? All the way up to and including the end-of-life decisions you know, that people will commonly refer to as pulling the plug. Yeah. You know, I, I, I don't like reminding my wife that she has this power because um, she's already looking for that darn plug. Um, but, 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 yeah, she has the power. So you might... You might say, well, wait a minute, isn't that what the living will is? No, 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 they're different. Because the healthcare document, the healthcare power of attorney is power. My wife has power to make those decisions. Mm-hmm. What's the living will then? It's the guidance. It's the guidance to my wife and my immediate family and okay. my friends and all of those people who care about me. What would I want or what would I not want? You're, you're, you're stating a term that I wanted to clarify. Healthcare power of attorney. Yep. The suggestion when I hear that is that there's another type of power of attorney. There is. And so you say healthcare power of attorney. What else is the there? other kind of power of attorney is generally what we call a, a financial power of attorney or a general power of attorney. And you will most often hear them referred to as durable powers of attorney. And durability means that it survives, the power continues, it survives the principal's incapacity. So the person signing the document, the person giving the power is what we call the principal. The person receiving the power is the agent. Okay. Is there a difference between these two documents? There is. And uh, so we have principles and agents of both healthcare powers of attorney and financial powers of attorney. The reason we call a financial power of attorney a durable power of attorney is that, believe it or not, the minute somebody becomes incapacitated, unless you have the special magic language, the financial power of attorney is no good anymore. Very, very counterintuitive because most people say, well, wait a minute, that's exactly why I did it Mm -hmm. in case I become incapacitated. But you have to have the the magic language. And uh, all of us who do this stuff for a living, we all put that language in there. Mm -hmm. That's why we call them durable powers of attorney. So what's the difference? Well, my medical document is activated by my doctor when my doctor certifies that I'm no longer able to participate and understand and give informed consent to things. That's when my medical power kicks in. My financial power of attorney is all the other stuff. Who's going to sign my tax return on my behalf? Who's going to deal with my banking and my insurance companies and my employer and my um, application for benefits through the state of New Hampshire if I'm eligible for something? Or, 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 or. And a good financial power of attorney these days is about a 10-page document. Wow. These days, it takes a lot of paper to say something so simple because, for example, the IRS requires a paragraph of language. 
The Social Security Administration requires a paragraph of language. The big banks and brokerage firms in New York City require a paragraph of language. Insurance companies require a paragraph of language. State agencies require a paragraph of language. And by the time you get everybody's particular language in there, you've got a fairly long, comprehensive document. Powers of attorney can be um, incredibly dangerous documents. Let's move on to the topic. Let's say what we can about guardianship. Sure. Yeah. And you know, introduce me to that okay. area. So what a guardianship petition is all about is bringing an action in our probate court saying that somebody is maybe through no fault of their own, through their own incapacity, they are a danger to themselves or a danger to other people. They're um uh we need to have protective measures in place and no less restrictive alternatives exist. Um, I was actually meeting with a fella. He was 95 years old. Mm-hmm. He was a wonderful guy. He was bright and articulate. He drove himself in. He drove himself out. He was a, um, you know, it, he was just a, a great guy. It was mm-hmm. the way we would all like to be when we're 95 years old and hopefully all will be. Um, sadly, he was meeting with me because his wife of, I believe it was 71 years, who was two years younger than he, um, uh, was failing from Alzheimer's disease. And he had made that uh, fundamental uh, mistake that so many people make. He, he believed that because they owned everything jointly and because they had been married for 71 years that he automatically had authority to just do what he needed to do to take care of his wife. And he found out when she was hospitalized that because she was no longer competent to make her own decisions and there was no prior planning in place that he had to go get a guardianship. And that process begins by petitioning the court. The court, because this is an allegedly incapacitated person who's got constitutional rights to make their own decisions, we have to have proof beyond a reasonable doubt that incapacitated person has an unconditional right to their own legal counsel. And uh, there is a very formal court proceeding involved in getting a guardian appointed. And once a guardian is appointed, that guardian is now subject to the review and oversight of the probate court. Mm. And that guardian, especially if it's a guardian over someone's financial affairs, has to be bonded. That guardian has to annually account to the court for what they did with their ward's uh, finances. Mm -hmm. There are certain things that require prior court permission before a guardian can do it. It is a big deal. And I oftentimes hear people um, are told by, you know, maybe a social worker at a hospital, oh, just go get a guardianship. Like it's the drive through at McDonald's, you know, like, uh, where, how do I get one of those guardianships? Where do I sign? Mm -hmm. You know, it's not that simple because the process, the focus of the process is in protecting that incapacitated individual. Now, I hope that if I'm ever catastrophically ill or hurt or I have Alzheimer's disease, uh, later in life, which I very well might Mm -hmm. as my grandfather died of Alzheimer's disease, I worry about that. I hopefully will never need a guardianship. Why? Because I've given my wife those powers. We have a trust. We have powers of attorney for financial matters. We have powers of attorney for healthcare directive uh, for healthcare decisions. So the documents that control guardianship are different than the documents. Well, essentially, you have a guardianship when you have no prior planning. Okay. So because the, the the hallmark is there has to be a need for the guardianship. 
and there cannot be less restrictive alternatives. So prior planning eliminates that you need. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so that's the idea. I okay. hope that if, if I ever uh, were ill or worse, my wife gets to avoid all of that because I have proactively given her that planning. Interesting. So I, I, I personally, uh, I hear this all the time from my clients, but I experienced it personally. When I did my own planning, it is very empowering. It is great. You know, I hear people talk about, you know, these vague terms like peace of mind or, mm-hmm. you know, it helps me sleep at night knowing that my affairs are in order. I hear those vague things like that. But I can tell you uh, from my perspective as, as just a person, when I did my planning, I felt that way. Mm-hmm. I know that if I'm, you know, if I get taken out by the beer truck or whatever it is, mm-hmm. you know, that my family is going to be okay. I know that I've got those things in place. So it is very comforting. And frankly, I don't want to be the subject of a guardianship proceeding. I don't have a crazy blended fractured family, but if I did, I don't want to get caught in the middle of a tug of war between, you know, my children from my first marriage and my second spouse. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't want to get yeah, sure. into that mess. Sure. And it happens all the time. I can imagine. Our probate system is a huge part of what goes on in the state of New Hampshire, and very few people are even aware it exists. I, I would encourage any of your listeners, if you really want to have an interesting experience, um, maybe go down to the courthouse and just watch a few just hearings, see, yeah. you know, and see what really goes on all around that us that most of us are, are oblivious to. Mm-hmm. I, I, I once, uh, when I was a very new lawyer, um, was in court with a client and I had to sit through the criminal arraignments. And these were felony arraignments that people were being bound over for felony trials. Mm-hmm. And I, I sat there, I, I was not in court for that reason, um, but I sat there with my jaw on the ground. You know, does this stuff really happen yeah. here in the state of I New Hampshire? happens all around us. Mm-hmm. And do families go to war over power and control and money? And mm-hmm. um, sure, yeah. And I, I also think we have an interesting thing happening demographically. Uh, a lot of my very elderly clients now are, you know, the World War II generation, and they oh, grow yes. up in very difficult times. Uh, many people grew up with nothing. Uh, they saw 50 million people go to war and kill one another. And um, they saw how tough the world can be. And my experience is that many, many of those people were very careful and very frugal and very hardworking. My parents were older when I was born. My parents were in their 40s. So I grew up with that generation. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dad served during World War II. My mom is now 90. Uh, those were very careful, frugal people. I'd like to ask you a question because you just suggested something to my mind, which you sat in court during felony cases and your jaw dropped. Yeah. For There are courts that take care of these types of issues that we've been talking about here. Would I learn a lot by sitting in such a court? Yeah, yeah. If, you, if you went to a probate court, now not all probate hearings are open to the public. Some okay. of them are closed hearings. Uh, guardianship hearings are generally closed, sure. uh, and that's to protect the ward and protect their privacy. Sure. But there are lots of things that go on that are open. And if you ask the uh, the court staff, you know, am I allowed to sit quietly in the back of the courtroom and just watch what goes on? Uh, the answer is sure, of course you I could learn a lot, and I could learn a lot from my listeners as well, as long as I don't divulge any, yeah. you know. And a lot of this stuff is public. I mean, these probate files are public record. Okay. You know, uh, so you, you can... That would be a good education. 
It is, and I, I recommend that newer, younger lawyers go do that okay. uh, because you get a sense of what the court process really is all about. I will say that um, some of the more mundane things are very form-driven, yeah. and a lot of it is done through the mail, but it's still very time-consuming and cumbersome. And where I was going with that story about my World War oh, yeah. II folks is that those people who were careful and frugal and paid off their mortgages and lived within their means... Um, seem to be few and far between these days. I see a lot of boomers that are hitting retirement that um, are not very financially well-prepared for their retirement. You see me shaking my head. They're not, uh, they're not very prepared for some of the health challenges that might come, and they don't take very good care of themselves in any number of ways. Um, and there are sadly going to be a number of people who are going to have very tough retirements. So I'm in full agreement with what you're saying. So being proactive is a huge part of this. Yes. And I see a lot more litigation. I think if you talk to any trust in the state's uh, attorney or elder law attorney, you, I think all of us are experiencing the same thing, that over the last maybe 10 years or so, we've seen an uptick in litigation over estates or over power and control. Because sometimes the children that are at war with one another are jockeying or posturing for the best position because they're counting on those family resources to shore up their own situation mm, mm. later on down the road. Right. And and also I've seen people fight over hardly anything, but it's all about the power and control yeah, kind of thing. That's unfortunate. So you see that a lot. And good planning goes a long way to heading off those issues. Let me move on to my, what could be the last topic of our conversation. Sure. It's Medicaid. Yeah, sure. Now, Very comprehensive. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I wanted to touch on this. I didn't want to leave the conversation yeah, without please. touching on this. What's the basic problems that we have when it comes to litigation and Medicaid or planning and Medicaid? Yeah. You know, talk Medicaid, to me about Medicaid. Well, first of all, what, what is Medicaid? You know, Excellent. Medicaid was created in the 1960s, the Johnson administration, war on poverty, great society kind of stuff, and it was you know we had had we had prevailed in World War II. We had had the prosperity of the 1950s and the early mm -hmm. 60s. And, you know, a lot of what we have today as a society is based on all that hard work from the generations that came before us. Well, in the 60s, there was a, a real push to create these public supports that, you know, we're a great country and nobody should go without care simply because they don't have the resources to pay for it. And what Medicaid essentially is, if you look at the actual law, it says grants to states for medical assistance programs. That's what the law actually says. It's part of our Social Security laws. And so Medicaid essentially was, hey, state of New Hampshire, state of California, state of North Dakota, state of Texas – have we got a deal for you? If you create programs that meet our criteria, we will help you pay for it. So what the federal Medicaid laws essentially are is an encouragement for states to develop their own programs to take care of the most vulnerable, needy people in our society the elderly, the blind, the disabled. And those programs over the years have become incredibly important to certain population groups. For example, a severely disabled child that if they didn't get the help and support that they needed, wouldn't be able to live in a family setting. Mm -hmm. uh, a severely disabled child might spend their life in a hospital bed. Mm -hmm. So uh, where, where I tend to cross paths with the Medicaid system more often than not 
are my elderly clients that end up in nursing homes. And um, if your listeners are not aware of this, I don't know what it is in other parts of the country, but the average cost of nursing home care in the state of New Hampshire is now $10,000 a month. And let me say that slowly, $10,000 a month, not a year, a month. So I don't care who you are. You have to be extremely well healed to be able to weather that storm for any extended period of time. And um, fortunately, most people don't spend years and years and years in nursing facilities. Um, In my never-to-be-humble opinion, the name of the game is to keep people young and healthy. I guess you can't really stay young, but you can stay young at heart, right? Isn't that what it's all about? That's exactly what it's all about. You don't have to get old. We all get older. We have no choice. But getting old, we have a choice about that. So I would much prefer that clients spend their money bettering their circumstances and staying safe and hiring the home care help and uh, the day programming, whatever else they might need so that they don't have to go to a nursing home. But once somebody's in a nursing home, it is a very scary thing financially. And I, you know, I've had, uh, you know, older people who end up in nursing homes who spend four months there at the very tail end of their life and pass away peacefully. And Mm -hmm. yes, it was an expensive four months, but it was only four months. I have also had people end up in nursing homes in their 50s and spend years and Mm -hmm. years and years. Uh, Sadly, oftentimes uh, through dementia illness, Mm. uh, there's an epidemic of Alzheimer's disease that seems to be hitting people at younger ages. I'm not sure why. If it's just we're getting better at diagnosing it, I don't know. Or we have our theories, but yeah, if there are other factors at play, I, I, you know, I I don't know. But I'm sure you're concerned about it with it being in your genetics. Yeah, it's it's a real concern. Mm -hmm. It's a real concern. And you know, when I have a client that's probably going to spend five, six, eight years in a nursing home. The Medicaid system is a hugely important support for that person. So when you say that the federal, the federal government said, create programs that meet these criteria, right. and we will fund it. Right. Not, not entirely. State pays most. Uh, state pays, let's say half of it, okay. for round numbers. So can half of it is the state, half of it's the. Feds. Can you talk about the criteria? That's yeah. yeah. Well, these were never meant to be, you know, free care for everybody. That's not what these programs were designed to do. I suppose if you want free care for everybody from uh, cradle to, to grave, you have to look elsewhere. Uh, that's not our system, for better or worse. Now, whether whether it should be our system or not is a public policy discussion. Mm -hmm. And the pendulum seems to go back and forth on that. Uh, But you are expected to pay your own way. So for a single person to be eligible for Medicaid, and when I say single, I mean unmarried or widowed or divorced, that um, that single individual, they have to be medically eligible, they have to be income eligible, and they have to be asset eligible. The thing that scares people the most is not the medical eligibility or the income eligibility. Those are usually the easy tests to get through. The one that always scares people are the asset tests. For example, in order to be asset eligible in the state of New Hampshire, you cannot have any more than $2,500, period. $2,500? $2,500. And that's not $2,500 plus the cash value of your life insurance that you've been paying on for the last 30 years. It's not $2,500 plus your retirement savings. It's $2,500. Your home? Now, homes are a little bit interesting because if they are unoccupied, 
for example, I'm single, I have a medical event, I end up in a nursing home, my home that is now sitting there unoccupied will not be countable at the time of my Medicaid application. However, the state of New Hampshire is going to expect that I begin good faith efforts to sell that property, liquidate it. Now I've got the money back in my bank account. Now I lose my Medicaid until my money is spent down. Mm. So when you have a single individual in a nursing home on Medicaid, odds are better than not that that person doesn't have much of anything left in this world. Now, there are always some interesting things that we can do. There are other things that that we might talk about with real estate, like renting it. Mm. There are some exceptions to the uh, the five-year look-back transfer penalties that you, some of your listeners may have heard about. Well, let's, there are let's, all sorts of things. The five-year look-back, I've, I've heard about that. Yep. But can you clarify what that Absolutely. is? Uh, the look-back period used to be shorter than that. But as the Medicaid uh, expense has grown on the state governments and on the federal government, the federal government passed a law back in 2005. It was called the Deficit Reduction Act of 2005, affectionately referred to as the DRA, mm-hmm. that became law on February 8, 2006, which is stunning to me that that was more than 10 years ago because it seems like yesterday to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a result of that law, everywhere in the country, the look-back period went to a full five years. And what that essentially means is, look, we know that people run out of money. We know that if you spend 10 years in a nursing home at $150,000 a year, you're probably going to run out of money at some point. What the look back period is all about is, look, we don't mind helping people as taxpayers. We don't mind stepping up to the plate to make sure that they get the care that they need. But we don't want to find out that the reason they have no money is that they gave it all away three weeks ago. Mm -hmm. So there are some people who, if they're ill or hurt or have dementia illness, whatever it is, may say, yikes, I I don't want to lose everything, so I'm just going to start giving it away to my children. Mm -hmm. Well, Congress is not super smart. But they're smart enough to know that if they didn't have some hard and fast restrictions mm-hmm. on gifting, it it would devolve into a free care for everyone kind of system. And that's not what it was intended to do. Mm-hmm. So Congress says if you give away assets for less than full and adequate consideration in return. So example, buying something is not a gift. Well, I bought a new car. Well, I didn't give something to the car dealer. Mm-hmm. I bought a car. Yeah. But if I give money to my son, that's an uncompensated transfer within that five years. So when you apply for Medicaid, quite literally, they want every stitch of paper of your financial life for the last five years. Mm-hmm. It's a giant chore okay. getting through. All so that. you have to, any gifts that you mm-hmm. give has to be. And you're going to be penalized, and you're going to be penalized. So for example, so here's what happens Medicaid is you either get it or you don't. Okay. Mm-hmm. If let's say two years ago I gave away significant money to my son just because, mm-hmm. and then I have a medical event, I end up needing Medicaid. I apply. Well, I can't even apply until I'm down to twenty five hundred dollars. Well, now I have no money. I apply for Medicaid, and they say, "Oh, but Dave, you gave away a big chunk of money to your son two years ago, or you gave your house to your son, or you gave it to an irrevocable trust, or you did whatever." 
you're now penalized. And what they do is they penalize you based on the value of what you gave away. So, for example, if I gave away $30,000 two years ago, I am going to be penalized for, and right now the math actually works out very evenly, about three months. Mm -hmm. Because we take the statewide average cost of care and divide the gift by that number, mm-hmm. and that number currently is about $10,000 a month. So if I gave away 30, I'm going to be penalized for three months. So here's here's the million-dollar question in all of this. Okay, I'm in a nursing home. I have no money left. I apply for Medicaid. I am penalized because I made a gift. Well, who's going to pay for my care for the next three months if Medicaid's not going to pay for it? Well, that puts the nursing homes in a really uncomfortable position because they are a very heavily regulated industry. Hmm. They weren't once upon a time, but there were so many awful things that happened that the federal Congress said, well, this is not going to go happen this way anymore. We're going to regulate this industry, and every state does as well. So we have transfer and discharge law. Nursing homes can't say to somebody, I'm sorry, Mr. Smith, it's been lovely taking care of you, but you ran out of money, and you're not open for Medicaid because of whatever issue, so good luck, have a nice life, get out. They can't do that, okay? So nursing homes were really taking it on the chin for an awfully long period of time. Well, they went to our legislature here in New Hampshire, and this is happening all around the country, and they said, you've got to give us some relief because we're all going to go out of business Mm -hmm. if we're forced to take care of people for free. We can't do that. And Medicaid, by the way, doesn't even pay them very much. Yeah, uh, you know, it doesn't pay them much at all. Mm-hmm. So they probably are losing money every month by having a Medicaid patient. Interesting. Yeah, which is partly why we see the dramatic increase in the private rates. Uh, we have we have subsidization in everything, but it's extreme subsidization in the nursing home industry. And um, I don't have the answer for that, by the way. Okay, uh, that's that's a major public policy debate yeah. that, that, yeah. that we it's as a society. Yeah, it's going on now. And if you think it's going on now, wait five years because the uh, the demographics are really changing, especially in New England. But I digress. Um, mm-hmm. So to get back to this, so now you get a nursing home that's taking care of somebody who's been penalized from receiving Medicaid for a period of time. What's the nursing home to do? Well, three and a half years ago, they were successful in getting the legislature to pass, and it became law without Governor Hassan, uh, with uh, now Senator Hassan's signature, uh, a, a remedy. They now have the right to sue the recipient of the gift, to pay for the care. So those gifts can have lots of unintended consequences. Number one, yeah, number one. Oh, and by the way, if it happened under a power of attorney, you see how it's all an interconnected Mm -hmm. web. Not only do they have the right to go after the recipient of the gift, they have the right to go after the, the agent under the power of attorney that gave the assets away inappropriately. So it's a very um, well, very uh, big deal kind of thing. And nursing homes can and do go after people because from the nursing home's perspective, yeah, well, it's, <laughs> it's an eye opener for most people. And and I, I will tell you, I've I've been doing this long enough to have lived through these changes, and it's a very different world today than it was ten years ago, and. 
I still hear stories about, well, you know, my, my great aunt was on Medicaid um, and they did this, so why can't my mother do the same thing? Mm. Well, that was a different time in a different place with a different set of laws with a very different dynamic in the healthcare industry. Mm. You know, things that we used to be able to do, we can't do anymore. So you've got to be very, very, very careful. And there are public policy ramifications to all of this. You know, that that is a, a, a multifaceted discussion. And, you know, there are, there are a lot of very smart people that are trying to figure this out right now. But, you know, but the reality is these gifts can have huge consequences on the patient. They can have huge consequences on the nursing home. They can have and the person receiving the gift. So you've got to be mindful of all of this. And again, the you know when you asked me earlier, what's the single most important takeaway? It's planning. It's what are the things that I can do when I'm forty? What are the things that I can do when I'm fifty? What are the things I can do when I'm sixty or seventy or beyond? I'm feeling behind now, and something's going to sure. <laughs> that I've thought about these issues to make sure that I'm as well positioned as I can be. You know, I guess top of the list is have really good luck. That's that's a good one. Number two, um, uh, present company excluded. I don't know if I'd be doing handstands on the edges of cliffs or whatever. Um, uh, number three, I think I would take good care of myself. I would try to eat well. I would try to be active and engaged. You know, Dave, I, this conversation know. has been an eye-opener for me, and I'm sure for a lot of my listeners as well. And I can continue this forever because I think we're just scratching the surface. We are. And, and that's one of the things that I, I find so rewarding about the kind of work that I do. You know, I don't do divorces. I don't do business deals. I don't do car accidents. I don't do, mm-hmm. you know, um, DWI cases. There are lots of things that lawyers do that I wouldn't touch those things with a 10-foot pole. Because you have this. Because this is an extremely comprehensive, deep area of law to be practicing in. And knowledge is power. Yes. But I feel compromised trying to close down the conversation because there's so much. Can you, let me ask you one more question in the area of Medicaid. Mm -hmm. I want you to tell me what that question is. What haven't we mentioned that we should mention before I close down the conversation? Mm -hmm. be careful about making decisions based on what you think the law is. Because number one, you might be wrong. And number two, the law is changing. Our system is going to be fundamentally different at some point. You know, stop and think about what this was like before we had a Medicaid system. Mm-hmm. You know, what did families do 75 years ago or 100 years ago or 500 years ago? We took care of one another. We took people in. My step-grandfather moved in and lived with my family. It wasn't even a blood relative. It was a step-relative for years. We're going to, out of necessity, see a lot more of that. Absolutely. Um, And I think what's happening in Washington right now is sort of a double-edged sword, depending on your perspective. For so many years, states have had their hands tied about what they were allowed to do or not allowed to do. The big discussion right now in Washington is about moving to a block grant system where they say, state of California, you're a really big state. You've got a lot of people. Here's your chunk of money. State of Texas, you're a really big state. You've got a lot of people. Here's your chunk of money. Oh, and then there's this little place up in northern New England called New Hampshire. You know, I, we, we can barely find it on a map, and not that many people live there. Here's your little, yeah, right, Rhode Island, right? Mm-hmm. You know, um, don't blink as you drive through. You might miss it. Um, here's your chunk of money. 
uh, and when it's gone, don't come back. That has some very serious ramifications depending on what states do or don't do with the money. On the good side, it allows states flexibility to target and design more creative programs. Mm -hmm. Uh, For example, with our expanded Medicaid here in New Hampshire, our state asked for permission from the federal government to impose a work requirement on those folks who were able-bodied and could get out and work as a precondition or as a concurrent condition for receiving Medicaid money. I think to most people that's common sense. Not to everybody, but to most people that's a common sense kind of approach. Washington shot that down and said, no, we're not going to allow that. Um, And there are, again, big-picture policy discussions behind all of this. But if New Hampshire had block grant money, New Hampshire might be able to tailor this. Sadly, I think some of the programs that could make a huge difference uh, in keeping people out of nursing homes, like our home and community-based care waiver programs, uh, the community supports, transportation issues, uh, day programming, yes, you know, home care, and that kind of stuff, to keep people in a community setting, I think that gets short shrift and is underfunded. I believe we will find some very creative solutions along those lines. I think we're going to have to. Yes. Because as a society, we have an awful lot of people coming into this system. And uh, millennials don't realize how much power they have because millennials are the ones that are going to be making these decisions for all of us as we get older. So, David Craig, how how do my listeners get hold of you? I am most happy to help in any way I can. Public education is a big part of this. Um, you do a lot of public I do, education? I speaking all over the place, uh, so I'm, I'm always happy to um, do that. Uh, in terms of uh, terms of getting a hold of me specifically, again, we're, we, we have a national audience here, so I want to make mm-hmm. it clear to people that I am only licensed to practice law in the state of New Hampshire. Sure. I know lots of wonderful people in other places. A good source, by the way, if any of your listeners are out of state and looking for other attorneys, the National Elder Law Foundation is the organization that runs and administers the board certification program. They have a very user-friendly website where you can search all of the 50 states and click on the map, uh, and that is NELF.org. National Elder Law Foundation.org, M-E-L-F.org. I will have this information in my show notes. Yeah, it's a great way to find attorneys in other places. For those people who are looking for New Hampshire help, I'm happy to be a resource. Uh, my website is CraigLawOffice.com, C-R-A-I-G Law. Office. I will put all this information on the show notes page that associates with this. Yeah, episode. and I'm happy to be a resource for people anyway. This has been a tremendously eye-opening conversation for me. Yeah, there's lots to learn. There really there is. is. I, I well, I, 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 I certainly I can feel your passion. You've educated me quite a bit. I'm going to be giving you my your information on my show notes page, and so um, it's been a my, great pleasure. Pleasure. I am. I I feel awkward shutting this down. There's just so much more I wanted to talk to you about, but I can't do it today. (laughs) You know, the the single biggest message is be proactive, live well, and plan, plan, plan. And that wraps it for episode 25 of the Inner Game of Aging podcast. I certainly hope you learned as much as I did during both parts one and two of this discussion. 
it certainly is an area that I need to dig into more in order to have that peace of mind that comes from knowing our arrangements have all been put into place. Join us on the show notes page for the ongoing discussions and any questions you might have for David. Go there to access a few of the articles David has written and any other goodies that may have been left there for you, the listener. And as usual, you can access the show notes page at the following URL, innergameofaging, one word, dot com, forward slash IGA25. Of course, we know by now that IGA stands for Inner Game of Aging. But you also don't want to miss the upcoming episodes that we have planned for you. There are so many good topics in the works up ahead, so please do yourself a favor and subscribe to this podcast on your podcast player of choice. That way, you can get these episodes as soon as they come out, downloaded to your phone or mobile device. Our next episode features a rather innovative and unique approach in caring for people suffering with dementia. If there's anyone in your life afflicted with this condition, you will definitely want to listen to this episode. And a bit further in upcoming episodes, you will hear the wisdom and lessons of a 90-year-old. The lessons that I learned in that conversation really impressed me. And another episode that has much relevance in today's demographics involves a different approach to housing and living costs than what we have normally considered in the past. I am sure that you will find that information extremely useful. So subscribe to this podcast so that you don't miss any of the information coming your way. And another announcement that I mentioned at the beginning of this episode is... I am slowly making progress in providing text transcriptions of selected episodes. The first transcript available is from episode 22, which gives all the details of my stroke and my recovery. Having transcripts makes this very easy to share with those that may also need this information. Reading the transcripts may also help you to consume and retain the information more easily. To get these transcripts, simply go to the show notes page for episode 22. Click the button that says, send me the transcript, and it will be emailed to you immediately, totally free. You will also be notified of other transcripts as they become available, all at no charge to you, at least as long as I can continue to provide them for free. To get involved in the Grow Older, Not Old message, consider joining the Insiders Club on the website. Not only will you get advanced notification of the things we are doing to spread this message, but you can also help to influence the choices we are making in growing this message. To join the Insiders Club, simply go to innergameofaging.com forward slash insiders. I love to hear your comments and feedbacks. Let us know how we are doing in providing the content that is useful to you. You can do this in several ways. Leave a comment on the show notes page. Write a short review in iTunes, which helps other people find this podcast. Or email me directly using lee at innergameofaging.com, all one word. 
I simply love receiving your comments and feedbacks. And so, until next time... Thanks for listening to the Inner Game of Aging podcast with Lee Mo Watt. Check out more content by going to theinnergameofaging.com. That's theinnergameofaging, no spaces, dot com. Stay with us as we learn the many ways of being older without growing old.